Hey, good morning. My name is David Wisson. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a series at our church called Fighting for Focus. We are going through verse by verse through the book of Hebrews. So with that in mind, grab your Bibles and turn to Psalm 8. Uh, We're going to take a detour this morning as we get started. We're going to be in Psalm 8. If um, you're visiting this morning or actually if any time that you attend, I'm so Glad that you chose to worship with us. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. Because we're going to be bouncing between Hebrews and Psalms, I'd love to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. I think it is highly unfair to any preacher to have to follow the song in Christ alone. That seems to just be a high point and kind of a crescendo in the service. What a a wonderful truth we just proclaimed, right? And so it's been said by someone somewhere that the role of the preacher is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict those that are comfortable. And uh, I'm going to try to do that this morning. It's interesting as we've gone through our study in the book of Hebrews, chapter one of Hebrews starts with a lot of comfort. And when I say comfort, I mean doctrine. And normally you wouldn't think of doctrine or theology as comforting, but to the followers of Jesus Christ, actually it's doctrine where we get our comfort. And in chapter one, Um, The author of Hebrews is talking about why Jesus deserves our everything, that he is creator, that he is sustainer, that he is God, that he is Lord, that he is greater than the angels. And then coming out of that truth and that comfort, man, he he hit us last week with a warning at the start of chapter two, and, and the warning was this, don't drift away from Jesus Christ, don't drift away from the gospel, and that warning how Shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? So he's given us comfort. He's kind of given us the warning. And then what's going to happen this morning, I'm glad to report, is he's going to give us more comfort, which means more doctrine. And hopefully this morning what you will see is is a new facet to what was accomplished by Jesus Christ on our behalf on the cross. And then we're going to close this service with communion so you can kind of be preparing your hearts for that. But I want to start in Psalm 8. It dovetails into Hebrews 2, what we'll be looking at this morning. I'm going to pick it up in Psalm 8, just the first verse. It says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Verse 3 When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now, the author of Psalm 8 is David. We know that. If you read kind of at the start in some of your Bibles, it'll say a Psalm of David. What we don't know is when he wrote it. But but what we're seeing is David is, I maybe envision him as a shepherd when he first penned these words, and he's looking up into the night sky at the Um, in the heavenlies, and he is just blown away by the power and majesty and glory of our God on full display in the night sky. So as he's reflecting on the glory of God and his majesty and his power, all of a sudden his attention shifts in verse 4. It says this, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? So as he's thinking about the majesty of God, maybe he's a shepherd out on a hill by himself just with sheep, and he's looking at the expanse of the heaven, and all of a sudden he starts to feel really small. Has that ever like happened to you? Where you're in a situation where you're looking at the night sky, or maybe you're looking at a mountain range, or Lake Michigan in the expanse, and you're like, man, I, I feel small, I feel insignificant. It's funny, when I travel, sometimes this happens, we'll fly out of Grand Rapids to a connecting airport, right? That's just kind of how it rolls. 
and you get to O'Hare or you get to the airport in Detroit and you're moving to your connecting gate and you're just flying past all of these people and these bigger airports are so busy and you're trying to find your gate, say, at O'Hare. And, and Kristen and I will look at each other and be like, man, there are a lot of people in this world. Have you ever felt that way? Just kind of alone in a crowd and man, how can all of these people travel every day? Like it doesn't make any sense and you just feel a little bit insignificant. So he's reflected on the majesty of God, but in the moment, he's like, well, what is man? I like, like, I feel so insignificant. And then he says in verse five, yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Verse six, seven, and eight, I think he's reflecting actually back on Genesis 1.26 where God explains that man is created in the image of God and that we were given dominion over all the, all the animals and beasts and fish and the things that live in the sea on the earth. He says, you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. So David is looking and he's saying, God, you are so immense, it's hard to comprehend, and then we seem so insignificant, and why would it be that you would care for us, that you would love us? In other Psalms, Dave, King David describes just how well we're known by God, that he knows our days, that he was involved in our formation in our mother's womb, and this contrast of the immensity of God and his care and individual love for us is what David is contemplating in Psalm 8. Now, he also says here that in God's original design, we had dominion over the world, that we were um, going to rule the world, but sin has basically um, taken our leadership away from us. Turn again now to Hebrews 2. We're going to pick up on this theme, that though once we were created to have everything in submission to us, boy, it feels a little bit different than that today, wouldn't you agree? So the author of Hebrews is going to pick up on this same thing in Hebrews 2, verse 5. He says this, he says, For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. And then he says in verse 6, It has been testified somewhere. That's odd to me, because then he quotes right from Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you should care for him? So do you think in the moment that he was writing Hebrews 2, that the author of Hebrews forgot where he was quoting from? Has that ever happened to you? You're like, I know this verse is somewhere. I can quote it, but I can't remember the reference. Do you think that's what's going on? I, I, I doubt it. In Hebrews, when the Old Testament is quoted, very seldom does he say where he's quoting from because he doesn't want to give any of the credit to man. He's viewing it all as God's word, and he's trying in these passages in chapter one and now in chapter two to make sure that our focus is not diverted to the man who wrote the passage but that he focuses our attention on the God who deserves our praise, our glory. He says, for it's been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? For you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subject, subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection under him, he left nothing outside of his control. Now, again, he's just quoting, I just showed you from Psalm 8 where we started, but a little bit of theology that I want to unpack for you. That word care from verse 6, what is man or the son of man that you care for him, that word care actually means to make him a benefactor. 
It's more than just a, um, I care for him in an emotional way, but the care that God has for us has now made us a benefactor. It would be like if you had a will for your children, they would be the benefactor of whatever is in your estate. What the author is saying is God has actually put us in a place where we are the benefactors of his care for us. And then it says, a little lower than the angels, again, quoting from Psalm 8, but notice here, it says, you have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And and our relationship with God is unique because we are creatures that were created in his image. Now, in this season, we are lower than the angels because they are spiritual beings. We are physical beings. They reside in the heavens. We reside on earth But now he's not only talking to our rank, but the duration of that rank. He says, in this season, we've been made a little lower than the angels, but there is a day coming, and I hope soon, where Jesus will step back in to our universe. We will see him flash across the sky in his return, and in that moment, sin will be defeated, and once again, Jesus will be king and king, king of kings and lord of lords of this world. It says in Revelation eleven fifteen that the day's coming that there will be a trumpet blast. The seventh trumpet will blast and it says the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of his Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And I felt like there should have been an amen at the end of that and, and you guys were asleep on me. So I probably didn't ramp it up real well. Can I read that verse to you again? Revelation 11.15 says that it'll be declared that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. Like like we're looking forward to that, right? So, So that's a day that we're looking forward to where our proper place in creation has ruler of the created order. Now notice, God will be king and king of king of kings and lord of lords. Everything will be subject to him, but we're promised that there is a day coming when the order of creation will be reestablished, that under God's ultimate authority, he will delegate authority over his creation back to man. Now, this raises a question in my mind when it says that he's put all of his creation subject to us. Is he talking about just what's on the, on the earth or is he talking about all of his creation? All of the planets, all of the stars, all of the galaxies. It's very unclear to me. I can't understand what it means by reading it, so let's just interpret by vote, okay? How many of you think that what's ultimately going to be under our authority is just his creation and what happens on earth? Raise your hand. Two of you. Okay, that's great. Three of you. Okay, thank you. Okay, how many of you think that we are going to be intergalactic rulers, that all of his creation will fall under our authority? Oh, I so want to be on your side of this. I really do. But, but I don't think it's accurate, though I hope that it is. I'm not sure. It's interesting. Back in Genesis, it says that the stars and the heavens were created for signs and for seasons, which would lead me to believe that as it relates to what we're going to be in charge of when Christ returns is basically just his creation here on earth. But just to be sure, I've been studying our universe. And there's some pretty awesome galaxies out there. And uh, here's a picture of a galaxy. This is a Sombrero galaxy. And I think that one's like really cool of all the pictures that the Hubble has taken. So I've called dibs on that one, just in case. And, And I don't know how dibs work in heaven or through all of 
eternity, so I've called eternal dibs. I'm not sure if that seals it for me. But there is a day coming when Jesus Christ will come back and he will reign. And, and the glory and honor that was given to man to be ruler over his creation will be restored. It says this. It says at the end of verse eight, I don't want you to miss this phrase. It says, at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. I think that's a pretty obvious statement, wouldn't you agree? That today, though it was created that things would be in subjection to us, and one day all things will again be restored under God's authority to our subjection, we will rule this on his behalf. I would say that today I wouldn't feel like the world is actually under our subjection, but in many ways we're subjected, subjected to the world. We plant, but we don't know that we'll harvest. We understand that one day all of us will return to dust. What we build eventually decays. It doesn't feel like we're really in control of anything. And in this season where the world experiences the brokenness of sin, there's something in us because we're image bearers of God that we want to rule, we want to be in control, but it just doesn't work out really well. And the reason it doesn't is because we make terrible gods. And we can pretend that we're in control of our career or our finances or our family, but the reality is we have very little control. You have very little control of your kids. You say, that's not true. Well, they were young when they were dedicated. High school's coming. You have very little control of your family. You have very little control of the market. You have very little control of your health. You have very little control of your career. And when we think that we're in control, sometimes we make very um, ineffective and terrible gods. I was thinking of things that I control in my life, and one of the things that I've controlled in the past is I used to really get into uh, aquariums. I had a saltwater fish tank, and uh, they'll put a picture of my tank up there. Um, it was pretty awesome, and it was about 350 gallons, and if in the back, it's kind of a weird picture, there's a reflection, it's not a great picture, but we had all of these things growing in the tank, and we had these beautiful fish, and we had these beautiful starfish, and man, when that tank was going well, um, it was great, and, and I was God. I controlled everything that happened inside that acrylic uh, cube, okay? But what I found is over time, I could make the tank look picturesque for a little while, but then what would happen is something would get a little bit out of whack. Maybe the salinity would get out of balance or a disease would strike the tank or algae would all of a sudden begin to bloom for some unknown reason or the pH of the water would get wrong and then all of a sudden the water would get cloudy and the beautiful fish would start to pale and turn gray and their scales would slowly fall off and then the water would get cloudy and I would peer into the death chamber of my aquarium and uh, a fish would swim up by the glass and look at me with one eye and um, <laughs> give you that look that kind of communicates you're really bad at this. And so sometimes we think we're in control but the reality is, he understates this at present, we do not see everything subject to him. Who rules the world today, do you know? Well, the Bible's clear. It says in John 13, 31, again in John 14, 30, that, that Satan, uh, a fallen angel, is called the ruler of this world. So, so to recap, creation was designed to be in submission to man. Presently, that's not true. In the future, God will restore creation. 
and man will once again be given a position of dominion over what God has created. Let's keep going. Look at verse nine. But we see now that for a little while he was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. Now, it's interesting. He's been quoting from Psalm 8, which is all about man. And now in verse nine, when it starts to talk, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. The, the, the pronoun has changed. Him is no longer like it was in verses five through eight talking about man, but now it's talking about Jesus. Well, how can you be sure? Well, the text says, namely Jesus, okay? He's switched and the author of Hebrews is now looking back at Psalm 8, but he's looking at it through the lens of the work of Jesus Christ, what he's accomplished on our behalf. So he says, for a little while, he, speaking of Jesus, was made a little lower than the angels. And this would have blown the minds of the first century Hebrew that was reading this letter. Because in his mind, how can Jesus be greater than the angels if he became like man, if he became like flesh? Because we're lower than the angels. How could Jesus be greater than the angels? Like he argued in verse one, if Jesus would actually have to experience death. And so what's gonna happen through the rest of this passage is the author of Hebrews is gonna explain why for a little while Jesus was made lower than the angels and what was accomplished because he was willing to take that position. But we see him who for a little while, verse nine, was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 10, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now again, he's talking about Jesus here. That started in verse nine. So in verse 10, he's saying the founder of our salvation, Jesus, has been made perfect through suffering. That's a weird phrase to me. How do you take what is perfect? Jesus was God from eternity past. In his incarnation, in his time here at earth, he lived a sinless life so he could be the spotless lamb, the blameless substitute for us. In eternity future, he'll be king of kings and lord of lords. So what does it mean that he took the founder of our faith and made what was perfect more perfecter. Like, like, what is the author talking about here? The big idea this morning is this, for Jesus to be a perfect champion, he must be a personal champion. For Jesus to be a perfect champion, he must be a personal champion. And what the author of Hebrews is going to do in just the next few verses, he's going to argue that though Jesus has been perfect from eternity past and will always remain perfect because he is God, he becomes our perfect champion by what he accomplished for us when he came to earth. That word founder that you see in the ESV, that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect, has also been translated the author of our salvation. I think the best translation would be that the captain or the champion of our salvation should be made perfect. That word founder is better translated captain or champion. 
He is engaged on our behalf in representative combat. He faces our foes for us. And this morning's message is really quite simple. There's just three things. Jesus is the perfect champion for us. Here's why I'll give three reasons. Here's the first reason, because Jesus defeated death for us. You see that right in verse nine, it says, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Verse 17 refers to Jesus again as a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Okay, propitiation for the sins of the people. Uh, Propitiation, I'm gonna say that's not a real common word that we use, would you agree? Anybody throw out the word propitiation at somebody this week? Probably not. And it's interesting, the Greek word here that's translated propitiation is actually translated a couple different ways in the New Testament. Sometimes you'll see that word translated propitiation, and other times you'll see it translated with the word expiation. Two different words, and and they go together, so I'm going to describe both for you here so you get a full picture. The idea behind propitiation is that an action was accomplished that changed the mood of somebody towards us. So um, if if I get in a fight with my wife, okay, and, and I'm trying to get back in her good graces because I've done something stupid and she's pointed out the stupidity of what I've done, I might choose to do an action. Maybe I bring her flowers, okay? That is the act that then hopefully changes her disposition towards me. So this idea that Jesus in defeating death for us, he defeated the penalty of death. Because of sin, the wages of sin is death. Not only does he defeat death, but we're also told that because of sin, Not only are we sentenced to death, but the wrath of God is on us. God's wrath is directed towards us. But when Jesus went to the cross, his work on the cross, the action that he did there, actually changed God's disposition towards us. He's no longer wrathful towards us. He is no longer angry towards us because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the the cross is the cause, the effect of the cross is that God's anger no longer lingers upon us. The penalty of our sin has been removed. So Jesus defeated the penalty of death. He also defeated the ruler of death. Look at verse 14. It says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Okay, so the one who has the power of death is the devil. Satan won a victory in the garden, and when we sinned, we were subject to death, but what also happened is that creation, which was supposed to be subject to us, God's creation, mankind, now he became the ruler of creation for a short season. 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And if you study the ministry of Jesus Christ, he wasn't just going about doing miracles and attracting multitudes and then somehow the thing turned and he ended up on a cross in Jerusalem. In studying through Luke, over and over again, you see Jesus fixing his gaze or setting his eyes on the cross. The whole reason that Jesus came to earth was to accomplish through his death on the cross, defeating the one who in this short season is ruler of this this world. 
John 16, 11 tells us that the ruler, Satan, the ruler of this world is judged. He is judged, he is sentenced, or he is found guilty, and he is awaiting final punishment. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 says, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's defeated the penalty, he's defeated the ruler of death, but now I'm gonna slow down because there's something really important in the text that I want you to see. He's also defeated the fear of death. Look at verse 15. He's delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Whether we realize it or not, whether we consciously focus on it or not, we live with the fear of death. We live in the shadow of death. If you believe that death is the ultimate end, the, the fear of that end will shape the way that you live. And, and um, bear with me, can I have some grace today as I teach you this next point? I'm gonna throw up a bunch of slides with dead men on them, okay? Some dead men quotes. And I don't normally like to pile these on, but some of the things that we're gonna hear from these men is really important when we consider what Christ has accomplished for us. There was this gentleman by the name of Sigmund Freud. You've heard that name, right? The, the founder of a lot of psychological theories, the founder of psychoanalysis, he believed that the fear of death dominates us oftener than we know. And Freud said that while it is impossible uh, not to acknowledge death, and again, I quote, we can't accept our own death. At bottom, no one believes in his own death. And he claimed, in the unconscious, every one of us is convinced of his own immortality. So he says, we've got this conflict with death, though for some reason, though we know that death exists, it's hard for us to see ourselves as anything but immortal. And, and it's interesting, he's playing on the edges of what is biblically true. Because we've been created in God's image, Ecclesiastes said that God has placed eternity in our hearts. We know that we're eternal beings, and for that reason, this idea of death, and from his standpoint, the finality of death was very, very troubling. For I believe that at, we were constantly in conflict between, between two extremes. At one extreme, each of us has a death wish, because of guilt and shame, because we understand that we're not living up to others' expectations, our own expectations. And at the other extreme, we have this incredible dread of death. And this struggle, we repress, and in repressing it, we refuse to admit how affected by the fear of death we actually are. Another gentleman by the name of Leo Tolstoy, he wrote the book War and Peace, Anna Karina, a very famous writer, also wrote later in his life, what he called his confessions. And I want you to see what he wrote. He said, from all indications, I should have been considered a completely happy man. This was when I was not yet 50 years old. And he says this, I had a good, loving, and beloved wife. I had fine children. I had a large estate that was growing and expanding without any effort on my part. More than ever before, I was respected by friends and acquaintances, praised by strangers, and I could claim a certain renown without really deluding myself. He says, moreover, I was not physically or mentally unhealthy. On the contrary, I enjoyed a physical and mental vigor such as I had rarely encountered among others my age. And, and, and listen to what he says next. This is important. And in such a state... When he had everything, when life was going exactly how anybody would want it, he had fame, fortune, and family. 
And in such a state of affairs, I came to the point where I couldn't live. And even though I feared death, I had to employ ruses against myself to keep from committing suicide. Well, why would a man who has it all say, I can't live because of the fear of death, and though he's fearful of death, he's also contemplating suicide. That's exactly what Freud was talking about, this conflict inside of us. And the reason is, if death is the end, what Tolstoy was realizing is everything that he accomplished was without meaning. He goes on and I quote, he says, if not today, then tomorrow sickness and death will come to everyone, to me, and nothing will remain except the stench and the worms. My deeds, whatever they may be, will be forgotten sooner or later, and I myself will be no more. Why then do anything? How can anyone fail to see this and live? That's what's amazing. It is possible to live only as long as life intoxicates us. Once we are sober, we cannot help seeing that it's all a delusion. It's a stupid delusion. Nor is there anything funny or witty about it. It's only cruel and stupid. Tolstoy, though he had everything as he was approaching the age of 50, said, if all of this ends in death and that's all there is, then that makes life meaningless. And it's hard to live in this constant fear and shadow of death. Shakespeare gave these words to Hamlet. Hamlet says, death is the undiscovered country from whence no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others that we do not know of. Again, if death is all there is, if death is not defeated, death renders life meaningless and leads us to some very dark places. So the number one question that we have as humanity, someone has said is, has anyone ever cheated death? And if so, have they provided us a way to cheat death as well? And what the writer of Hebrews is saying, not only has Jesus taken away the penalty of death, not only has he defeated the ruler of death, but he also defeats the fear of death. Verse 14, right at the end, you see that through death he might, verse 15, deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What C.S. Lewis has said is, our great captain has opened a cleft in the pitiless walls of the world and bids us come through. All of that to say this, Jesus Christ in defeating death for us not only promises us an eternity that we are eternal beings and promises eternal life, but he gives meaning to this life as well. Here's a second thing. Jesus is our perfect champion because he defeated death, he defeated the penalty of death, the ruler of death, and the fear of death. But here's a second thing. Look at verse 11. Jesus became family for us. Jesus became family for us. Verse 11, for he who sanctifies and those who sanctified all have one source. This is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. What, what he's doing here is the author of Hebrews is quoting from Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, messianic texts about the Messiah, claiming that Jesus is the Messiah in the Old Testament. But he goes on and says something. And the phrase that caught my attention that I fixated on this week is this one that he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We don't have a God who is distant. 
We have a God who identifies with us. And in the Old Testament, the relationship between God and his people was, I am your God and you are my chosen or you are my people. Typically, it was described as a ruler or a king over his people. In the New Testament, it changes. And what you see is the language as it relates to God and to Jesus. He's saying that he's a fellow brother of ours. Romans 8.17, Paul writes that we're joint heirs with Jesus Christ. We are now family. We can refer to God Almighty as Abba, Father. Jesus is our brother. He is our champion because he was willing to become family for us. Sigmund Freud got some things right. One of the things that he said was he observed human nature and believed that each of us carry through life this burden of guilt and shame, failed expectations. So he prescribed a solution. And his solution, again, Freud, the founder of psychoanalysis, said that the primary purpose, the intention of everything that he did in his career, he summarized it, he said, this is my life's work, my life's mission. He says, the intention of my work is to represent the sense of guilt as the most important problem in the development of civilization and to show that the price we pay for our advance in civilization is a loss of happiness through the heightening of this sense of guilt. Okay, so Freud believed that the biggest problem facing humanity was this guilt and shame that each of us carry. And he said the roots of this, group, this guilt and shame is basically due to two things, fear of authority and fear of loss of parental love. And those two things come together and form our conscience. And he basically said, has mankind, as we explore the way that we operate and the way that we think, we got to deal with this problem of guilt and shame. And it's interesting, later in his career, he would write that this guilt and shame that we carry isn't even a true emotion. It's actually a sign and its source is mental illness. Quoting again from Freud, he says, as far as the patient is concerned, this sense of guilt is dumb. It does not tell him he is guilty. He does not feel guilty. He feels ill. So the cure for our guilt and shame was to realize that we shouldn't think about it and to fixate on it as only a mental illness. Okay? Can I ask you a question? Is that an effective cure for our guilt and shame? See, see the Bible has a completely different approach. It says the reason that we feel guilty or that we carry guilt is because we are guilty. The reason that we feel shame is that we're shameful. Same problem of guilt and shame, but the solution is way different. The gospel says that Jesus came and bore our guilt and shame on the cross, paid the penalty for our guilt and shame, and then the author of Hebrews says this incredible thing. He's your brother, and he's not even ashamed of you. So the guilt and shame that you carry is not dealt with by saying it's not real and it's a mental illness. Jesus took it for us on the cross. He, he removed our guilt and shame so that we don't have to live under the failed expectations and the weight of the guilt and shame. He says, I loved you, I cared for you, I completely knew who you are, you're family, you're a brother to me, and I'm not ashamed to call you brother. See, Jesus is not just a champion, he's our champion because he came, became family 
and he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Here's the third thing I want you to see in the text. Jesus suffered and was tempted for us. Look at verse nine. It says, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering. Verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Verse 18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Okay? So, a couple things. Jesus suffered and was tempted for us. Now, let me explain how this works because if you look at the life of Jesus, I understand that he had to become man, humble himself, and I understand that he had to go to the cross, but if you look at the story of his life, man, he suffered greatly throughout his entire life. And, and the question that is on the people reading this letter, the Hebrews that were reading it is, why, if God is God and we're his followers, is life often so difficult and hard? That's a question that the author of Hebrews is constantly trying to answer. And what he's answering here for you is that we have, we have a God. And that God is not unlike us because he became like us and he suffered and endured everything just how we endured it. I'm looking to pick on somebody. I see Dane there. Dane, you coming up here for, for, with me for a minute, okay? I was looking for somebody who'd been married even less time than you, but how long have you been married? Five years. Five years. Okay, so he's been five years. He's not a rookie, but he kind of is, right? So, so, so maybe not in the honeymoon stage just yet, but a lot less time than I've been married. I've been married like 36 years. I got nine grandkids. How many grandkids you got? Yeah, exactly. Okay, so, so, so here's a question. If, if you were um, in a marriage that was struggling and you were coming to get marriage counseling, would you rather get your counseling from Dane, who's been married like 15 minutes, okay? <laughs> or, or, or would you rather come to a guy like me with the experience of 36 years? Like how many, just raise your hand, if you would prefer to be counseled by, by Dane? Dude, you just got shut out. That's fine. <laughs> okay, not one person voted for you. Becky, your wife, did not vote for you. Did you notice that? <laughs> okay, like, like you want somebody who has some experience to help you with the areas where you're struggling, right? Okay, so let's, let's change the parameters for, for a minute. You're gonna come to me for counseling, but I can only give you counsel based off my 36 years of experience. That's all I've got. Dane, he's gonna take his short time that he's married, but he's gonna carry this and he can only give you counsel from God's word, okay? Now, if you had to choose who you wanted to receive marriage counseling from, would you choose me and my experience or Dane with the word of God? Who chooses Dane now? Why? You didn't win. I mean, you had that. I mean, that, that's what won. Like, like don't, no fist pumps. Thanks, man. So, so, so why would you do that? Well, a couple things. First of all, you know that 
Jesus is the creator of marriage, right? He, he set it up, he established it. He's, his creator should know how it works. And, and now, Jesus was never married, but you understand when scripture says that he is tempted and he suffered in every way that we have, even though not married, he understands everything that you've experienced in your life and has suffered, can I argue, to a greater degree than you've ever experienced? So, so, so maybe in your marriage you felt misunderstood. Do you think Jesus ever felt misunderstood? Do you think there was ever hostility towards him for no reason? Do you think that um, he didn't understand betrayal? Like, like, you need to see this. Jesus suffered and was tempted. He lived the life that he did. He was betrayed by one of his own disciples with a kiss. Why? For us. So that when we go through the valleys of life, when we go through the difficult seasons of life, we don't just have a champion, we have a champion that is our champion because he's experienced everything that we've experienced. And here's what that means. When you're struggling, when you feel betrayed, when you feel alone, when you're discouraged, when you feel you haven't been treated well, when you're phone rings and your life is forever altered by the news that you just received. We don't have some distant savior. Jesus is right there and he can say, I know. I know what you're feeling. I know what you're going through. I've been there. He suffered and was tempted for us. It's interesting, in the book of Ruth, there's a story of a woman by the name of uh, Naomi. And Naomi has her husband die, and then very quickly her two sons also die. And Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth, comes to comfort Naomi. And in response to Ruth showing up, Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Naomi, it's not my name. Don't ever call me that again. From now on, my name is Mara. And in Hebrew, Mara means bitter. And she looked at the struggles of life and the difficulties of life, and they, they turned her to the point where she's like, I I'm defined by bitterness. Don't call me by my name. Call me bitter. And, and, and quite honestly, in the struggles of life, looking at what she went through, looking at some of the things that will be called to go through, but like it's understandable, right? Which is why we study Hebrews to fight for focus. And in those seasons, what we're called to do is to fix our eyes on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2, the key verse of the whole book, because we have in Jesus Christ, not a champion, but our champion. He's defeated death, the fear of death. And he suffered and tempted so that we are never alone in this broken world. I'm gonna do this. I'm gonna call the ushers forward. And I would just like you to take a minute. Don't, don't disengage, but I'm gonna call the band out. They're gonna come. And in just a moment, we're gonna take communion. And the question that I would ask you to consider is thinking about last week and our discussion on don't drift. How you doing? Hey, has your religion, has your faith in Jesus Christ 
become a intellectual exercises it become a pattern of attending church but the reality is you're disconnected from your savior he has drifted away from being your savior and maybe in these moments what we need to be praying for is a prayer of confession before we take the elements of communion and just say lord i've been in a season where i've taken my eyes off you where where i've drifted where quite honestly You've become a detached truth, but you're not my present reality. Communion remembers the suffering that Jesus Christ was willing to endure on our behalf. Remembers what he went through for us on the cross. But the reality is the story doesn't end there. There's an empty tomb. There's a risen Savior. There's a returning Savior. And he is our King, our Savior, and our champion. And that's what we celebrate. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning that though in Hebrews 2, some of the the language is hard and the truths are difficult to pull out, I thank you for what the author wrote, that you are our champion that you are not a distant God who laid out the expanses of the universe, but you're a God that cares for us, that loves us, that even today as we stumble and bumble our way through life, you're not ashamed to call us brothers. What an incredible love we celebrate. What a great Savior, our Savior. It is in the name of Jesus that we can approach throne of God with confidence because we are joint heirs. He has removed your wrath. And for that reason, we praise the name of your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.